Hey everyone, on today's episode, Chase and I get into the new BYU task force that was created to root out racism, kind of discuss kind of what they're going through with that and how they've been making headlines and the nuance behind it, Uh, as well as after that we get into a little bit of spirituality versus religion, and also uh, we actually touch on some BYU sports on today's podcast, so I hope you enjoy that. Also, you may have noticed we got a new logo for the show, Fifty Shades of Blue, uh, which was done by a friend of mine, uh, and, and she did a great job. It looks amazing. I love it, and I just think it's really cool that she took the time to do that, which um, in all honesty probably didn't take her nearly as much time as it took me to take to do the terrible logo that we had initially, so there's that. One other thing I wanted to tease before we get into this podcast was that um, I actually really... I'm excited about another guest we're going to have later this week. I'm going to have a sit down with uh, a former general authority, so he's a general authority emeritus, Tad Collister, who uh, is probably most well known for writing The Infinite Atonement, which is probably one of the most popular books within The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Anyway, we're going to publish that episode on Thursday, and we'll probably get into kind of you know, I, I basically want to address kind of being single in the state of Utah and old and kind of what his views are on that and marriage in general. And I think it'll be a pretty funny conversation. We can have funny banter every now and then. So I hope you guys enjoy that one. That'll be coming probably out on Thursday, just FYI. Anyway, hope you enjoy this episode. If you've been liking it, please share it with your friends. Leave a review, all that stuff. Uh, I love this uh, the feedback that I'm getting from a lot of you. So just let me know what you like, what you don't like. And I'll obviously try and adjust it. Killer for Dad has become a big-time college basketball star at BYU. That's one of my lyrics in the song. There couldn't be a, a prouder older brother than Carlino, me. Carlino, a bounce to Haas. Haas posting up short corner right to the middle. Fades away. Got yeah! Gotta watch the three. When you do what's right on and off the field, uh, I, I think the Lord steps in and, and uh, plays, a, you know, plays a part in that. Magic happens. Chaser, we're back. How you doing? I'm feeling good. Uh, what are we at? Episode 12, 13 now? I think around 12, yeah. Yeah, not the episodes you and I have done together specifically, but yeah, the uh, um, overall, I believe this is episode 12. Very nice. Things have been rolling along. It's been fun. Um, I Before we like really kind of dive into things today, because we do have a few topics we want to cover, um which we will cover BYU sports near the end of the podcast, I think, because there is some pretty cool, relevant stuff out there. Um, there's BYU's football schedule that got finalized this coming season. Uh, BYU basketball um, is is on the verge of doing very well, or they are doing very well, and kind of see how that plays out in the tournament coming up in Vegas this weekend. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Um, I wanted to throw this your way because I saw a hilarious hypothetical on Twitter and so I want to get your thoughts on it. Let's hear it. Your wife has been kidnapped and is being held in a location 30 minutes away. You're driving to rescue her. It's a warm night and your windows are down. Do you listen to music on the drive there, yes or no? Do you want the honest answer or do you want my uh, my fantasy answer? Uh, I want both, dude. Well, the honest answer is I don't think you could in that kind of – I mean, if you – put yourself in the shoes of someone whose wife got kidnapped. I, I don't think uh, music's going to be on your mind, but 
if I was a movie, if I was putting myself... Are you crying on the way there? Is that what you're doing? Just like bawling, like wiping tears from your eyes as you're driving, trying to see the road? No, it'd be more like a... I think it would be like Walter White on the in Breaking Bad when Jesse uh, tricks him into uh, into driving out to the middle of the desert where his uh, money is stashed. I feel like it would. I would look like Walt in that situation. Yeah. Okay. That's that's probably fair. That's a boring response. So, what's your fantasy? Fantasy response is that there would be some kind of hardcore rock blazing, and I would be uh, doing 120 down the freeway with the windows open. <laughs> it would probably be something like on Mad Max, where you're just cruising down the road, and you have all those guys behind you with the guitar playing the music. It'd be something along those lines. That's a weird fantasy you have. I'm not gonna lie. That sounds that sounds very strange to me. I, for me, I can't really compare it, but I just know that I would be listening to Rage Against the Machine probably on loop, and specifically um, Killing in the Name. Yeah, I think that would be just going over and over and over, and I would just be getting amped the whole way. Well, that brings us and, that brings us back to our EFY days when we blasted that out the window. Um, every afternoon (laughs) every afternoon it was like it was the notice that it was four o'clock in the afternoon we were just letting people know it was that was so cool to do that dude we were so cool oh yeah all all those kids out there having a spiritual experience and i was blasting the f-bomb out the window on byu campus that was we were that was so (laughs) sick of us to do that we we were awesome tight Anyway, so yeah, I thought that was funny. I thought that was a legitimately funny question, which which what I think is even funnier is that I'm not sure the person that posed that hypothetical on Twitter was actually trying to make it funny because they said, they followed that up, they replied to their own tweet, and they just said, I don't think I would. You're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> that all of a sudden took this from like a hilarious scenario and a funny hypothetical. I mean, I, I understand the premise is terrible, like your wife's been kidnapped and blah, blah, blah. But like, it's freaking Twitter. Like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Which brings me to a funny little story as well that I learned today. One of our favorite Twitter follows um, got into a little tiff with a local congressman. I don't know if you saw that, but um, she was calling him out for being... Um, dismissive on twitter i guess because they were talking about policy and he said hey anytime you want to come up to the capitol building like you can spend a day with me and she took him up on it and so she went up to the capitol building and they spent the day together and she walked away being like yeah he's a nice guy um i talked to him about how like maybe he comes across as like a little dismissive and disrespectful on twitter and then he got asked about that and he's like yeah i mean i i probably was a little bit too snarky on twitter i probably do that too much but uh it's twitter so <laughs> like that like kind of like took it t- it takes you into this uh situation where all of a sudden you realize yeah Twitter is kind of a tool for children let's be honest like well, it was developed by a guy that was on psychedelics in in the eastern part of the world like that's the premise of Twitter he thought how can people communicate in as little words as possible but still wanting to c- communicate that's the premise they thought what tool can we develop where people are limited in their ability to communicate? I mean, that's a terrible premise when you think about it. And here, everybody's taking it so seriously. Well, and it's weird because I feel like Twitter, everyone kind of takes on some variation of a persona when they're on Twitter. And it's kind of funny to see someone like her who's like, 
when she when she has her little mob behind her, she's like super aggressive, calls everyone out, tell, calls everyone a terrible person who doesn't agree with her. But then when she has to actually see that person face to face, she's suddenly not so willing to call him a terrible person because she doesn't have her mob ready to pounce on him when she's by herself. Yeah, and I, I would actually build off of what you're saying, and I would maybe tone it down a little bit and not say necessarily it's like a a variation of a persona, but I would say it's probably more an exaggerated form of your actual self. Like, I, I think it's it's basically you're 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 a different version of who you really are, but no, sorry, you're an exaggerated version of who you are to some degree in some settings, and it's just turned up to eleven on Twitter. It's just obviously because there's just no boundaries there are no non-verbal boundaries that usually people have to stick to in in a normal conversation or i would even take that a step further and say it's a it's an amplified version of your worst self (laughs) more more so more more so than who you really are it's take your worst qualities and then amplify them by 10 and that's what you get on twitter well let's be real nobody's best self is ever on twitter right well and if, unless they're boring. talking about how much they tip waiters at a restaurant and how they want to like develop some sort of community goal to like get together and do that which like i love i love like the concept of of tipping big i think i, I kind of hate the system it's built on but i think it's important to you know help those that are clearly taking jobs that i would never want to take i like i kind of like that but to broadcast that on social media, anyway, I'm just getting tangential at this point, so well, maybe we should move on. Not to carry the tangent on a little step further, but I, I have a question for you because this always comes up to me when I'm on dates and stuff. When you go to a restaurant where they don't, where you don't sit down, they don't come and take your order and serve you, and the, but they still put the little tip option on the screen when you pay. Do you ever pay a tip in those situations, or do you not? When I'm on a date, almost certainly. Um, when I'm not like I'll give them like a dollar which I know is so stupid it's like all like just built around like how they're viewing me in the moment I just cave to that pressure um but sometimes I still do anyway because it just depends like some of those places will bring your food out to you so I kind of think okay well that's like tip worthy I guess they'll instead of like calling your number and having to come get it yourself um but like say for example I was at five guys the other night Five Guys just calls your number and you come and get it from the counter. If Five Guys asked for a tip, I would never do it because the nothing they do is tip worthy. Like you even take care of your own food and put it in the trash on your own. Yeah. But, I mean, one could like, argue. But that... like Spitz, for example, will like bring it out to you or something like that. And so that's a little yeah. bit more tip worthy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't pay tips. Even if I'm on a date and my date's looking right at that screen when I'm pressing the button, I'll still, <laughs> I still don't tip. Maybe that's, maybe that explains some of my lack of second dates. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's well, just, I, I, I got called out for it one time. Like one of the girls I was with, like maybe I have PTSD and that's why, but like, I just hit no. And she's like, Ooh, harsh. <laughs> and I was like, Oh gosh, you noticed? Dang. Why were you looking? And then, I mean, we were actually going on a few dates, so it was more funny than anything. She wasn't like, it wasn't like a first date where she was like, okay, now I know the type of guy you are. It was probably legitimately our fourth date and we were getting along really well at that point. And she just said it and really was just kind of a funny joke, but yeah, but it did kind of make me feel a little bit insecure about it moving forward. So I was like, what's another dollar or two? I don't know, whatever, just to get these girls off my freaking back. (laughs) I feel like she shouldn't be watching that. That's like watching a guy. That's like looking over the over the um, divider when someone's taking a piss. 
can't do that. Is that what it's like? Is that I, what it's like? I'd say it's pretty much on the same level. Yeah, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's true. You would. Dude, speaking of which, this is totally, we're going way off on a tangent now, but I was driving back to Colorado yesterday, and I always stop at the Love's Pit Stop in Grand Junction on the way back. It's just become routine for me. And in the in the restroom there in the gas station, they have so they they have the dividers between the between the urinals, but then they have these little um, these little laminated things you can take out of the thing and you can you can extend the divider if you're worried about someone peering over and looking at your penis you can you can uh they, you can stick this uh laminated paper on the, like through this little slit on the edge of the divider and extend it out even further if you're paranoid <laughs> it's kind of funny but <laughs> all right i know i were gonna actually get talking about it, something that i really wanted to bring up today which was um BYU has been in the news recently because they um, thought it was thought it would behoove them to set up a task force, as they called it, to basically weed out racism. And it sounds like from a systemic standpoint, as much as they're able to. And they're talking about kind of like how they need to basically like redesign a lot of their norms and their standards and whatever else you want to call it in order to facilitate an atmosphere where it's less racist. Um, So a couple things that come to mind immediately is that just by doing that, BYU is essentially admitting that they've uh, designed a system that's racist. So that's interesting. Like, did they... And maybe not from a purposeful standpoint, but they certainly facilitated one. And so there's there's an acknowledgement there on their end that they've been racist, I guess, or at least at the at the very worst, or sorry, at the very best, ignorant. Um, and so I find that interesting in and of itself. And then it's also one thing that I've been kind of taking issue with lately, just in as a general sense, is that in these scenarios it seems like these organizations are what they're really doing is they're falling victim to this kind of salient standard that a lot of other organizations have fallen to, which is feeling like they need to address the symptom directly rather than the cause. Like it's, it's almost like they're always basically catering to whatever the critique is as opposed to trying to make it. So there's never a critique in the first place, which I understand that there will always be critiques out there. So you can't really mitigate that to the a hundred percent, but you can at least say set up a standard like like this is why we are the way we are. This is what we emphasize and this is what we focus on. But I guess we're living in a world where math and data and statistics are racist inherently and numbers are racist. racist so you can't even defend yourself by saying we're just going off of the numbers. I mean, they in that in the report, I don't know if you saw the report at all, but they talk about that making suggestions like scholarship opportunities, like making those more apparent, like on websites with which, by the way, they say, like, if we do this, this will help out our students, our minority students. There's an there's an obvious implication there as well that they're like, I guess they're I mean, the playing field is already level in that respect, because if it's not that apparent to any of the, to the minority students, it's, I mean, it's not that apparent to any of the students, it sounds like. But they're implying that just because it was somewhat hidden to find these scholarship opportunities on a website, that that was somehow disadvantageous for minority students, which I'm not sure why that would be. It just seems like it was the same playing field for everybody. So I don't know why they're they're 
making that claim indirectly. But why aren't they addressing the issue that minority students aren't already aggressively pursuing scholarship opportunities? Like, why, why don't they just say that? Why don't they say, we want to make it more well known to them that these are available? And apparently we've been lacking in that regard. So they don't even they don't even address that directly in their in the in the statement or in the, it was this long response that they had. It was like 70 some pages. And they also this one thing. I, this is something I found really interesting, too. They don't give percentages. They give hard numbers. They're basically talking like frequencies. Right. So I find I'm a little I'm a little dubious of that approach just from an academic standpoint. Like it's it's for one, it's 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 obvious that BYU doesn't get a high amount of minority applicants as it stands. Right. There's no there's no secret. Everybody knows that. I mean, it's 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 an extension of the church and the church is not doesn't have a lot of minorities in it. That's just the way it is. Um, So why would they base their findings off of raw numbers and not percentages like that? That to me is immediately questionable. And it seems to me that if they were to do it off of percentages, you could see a more equitable story like than, than the one they're trying to show right now. I don't, I don't know, because I just like I said, from an academic standpoint, period, like that the, when they're showing frequencies like that, that's basically the lowest form of statistical analysis. Like a lot of those studies don't even get published because you're just showing frequencies, which don't really tell you a story. But if you go off of percentages and do some regressions and things like that to show like what is related to what, then you're getting a little bit more into the storytelling of the situation. But they ignore all of that in this report. And they're just saying this amount of Hispanics have received a scholarship, or they just say less than 10 black students have a scholarship, and this amount of white kids have a scholarship, as opposed to just saying, well, this amount of the students is white, and this amount, like percentage of those students have this as the scholarship. And this amount of students is Hispanic, and they have this percentage of a scholarship, or this percentage of them have a scholarship. But they ignore all that. So I'm a little bit, I'm just confused. Like, if they're not being direct to me, it seems. And so that's that's kind of the issue I'm laying out right now. And it's just kind of, it's a little disappointing from a standpoint where I think, why is BYU placating to this? Where, like, in other words, the, the burden of proof is on BYU as opposed to those that are accusing them of being a racist institution in the first place. Well, all I know is my experience at BYU and scholarships was essentially whatever college you were in at BYU, you look up the number for a full tuition scholarship, you look up the number for a half tuition scholarship. I don't recall any of those having my race attached to them. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but as far as my recollection goes, those numbers applied to everyone and everyone was in equal in equal position to, to attain those GPAs to get those scholarships. Second of all, this doesn't apply to BYU as much, but it's just interesting to me because after I moved on from BYU and went on to my post-BYU education, I received emails on almost a weekly basis about special scholarships for this and that, for women, for minorities. I don't remember ever seeing a white male scholarship uh, come to the come to my uh, front desk. So I'm not really sure um, what this idea is that there's some sort of disadvantage in scholarship opportunities, at least based on my personal experience. Third of all, I, I can't help but laugh a little bit when I see the word task force applied to this situation. Because when I hear task force, I think of like looking for like a bomb, like there's some kind of bomb threat and they're having to, to find out where the bomb is. But we're talking about you know, BYU and racism, which it seems like a little bit of melodramatic, seems a little bit overdramatic to me. 
to, to be using that terminology. And, uh, and my, the biggest problem I have with this is I feel like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I feel like if you're going to go create this task force to weed out racism or whatever they're trying to do at BYU, I feel like if once you, once you create a task force or a committee to look for this kind of thing, of course, they're going to have to justify their existence and continue to have findings that continue justifying their existence in the future. You give someone a job and their job is to, to if their job is going to continue to remain relevant, they're going to have to find things whether they're there or not. And so, of course, they're going to continue to dig up numbers and bend the numbers and make the numbers look like or create basically bend the numbers in a way that justify the committee's existence in the first place. And so I, I, it just seems kind of counterproductive. And then to your point, what you were saying earlier um, about how you're kind of treating the symptom rather than the root of the problem, like what do they think they're going to accomplish? Like what, like what do they, like, do they think they're going to, like if someone's racist at BYU, are they going to stop people from being racist or are they just going to make the racism go underground? Like I, I just don't understand what the what what's what's the goal here? Are we just trying to get people to be more quiet about their racism? But we're what does that accomplish for anyone? I don't understand. Yeah, I, that's a fair question. I'm not sure what the ultimate goal is. I guess I mean the ultimate goal is obviously let's get rid ourselves of racism. But racism is so dependent on how it's received, and so you, you I don't think you'll ever root it out ever. Not just racism, but I just mean how any any offense whatsoever you know, is, is now defined by how anything was received. It doesn't matter what you say. It only matters how it was received, which is so, so backwards, but that's neither here nor there for the moment. But so I think that applies to racism as well. So you can't necessarily guarantee that you'll facilitate any type of system that is racism free, as long as anybody wants to cry racism in any context they see fit. I want to go back to what you said about that task force, so to speak, because that is a really good point. Once that gets established, that's never going away. Because as soon as BYU says, all right, well, I think we've rooted out racism, so uh, let's disband this task force, then they're going to make national headlines that they've disbanded a, a task force that was meant to get rid of racism. So it's like they're saying they're now, now the implicit message there is that BYU doesn't care to combat racism. <laughs> so now it's kind of like, well, now you're going to have to create funding for this uh, office year in and year out, which maybe that was the point the whole time. I don't know. But regardless, that's here to stay. That's never going away. You're right about that. Yeah. It's kind of like if, if, uh, if, if science were to discover that medications do nothing to help people survive, then doctors are going to be out of a job. So even if that were to be discovered, doctors would do everything in their power to prevent that from being from the light being shed on that because no one wants their job to be made irrelevant. So if your job is to be on a racism tax task force, then you're not, then you, you are incentivized to keep that job alive and find reasons for that job to exist. Yeah, absolutely. So then you're going to get a whole conspiracy about how the racism task or the anti-racism task force was ultimately the racism task force because they're actually trying to ignite it just so that they can exist to put out the flames it's almost like backdraft that the uh the the premise of the movie backdraft that the the it was the fire chief that was actually the one lighting all the fires spoiler alert or something like that or a fireman or something because they wanted to keep putting them out and beating the hero (laughs) (laughs) same idea right when you're funding and when your livelihood is dependent on it sometimes you actually want it to exist what else did you have man i mean i'm pretty i'm pretty 
good with that one. I with that topic, I got out what I wanted to say. Um, so. Yeah, there's a couple of things I saw on Twitter recently. Um, I guess first of all, one trend I've noticed. It's kind of funny to me. Um, so among, I don't know if it's just LDS women or if it's there's probably a broader trend here. But I've noticed that in the 21st century, it seems like people have sort of gravitated away from organized religion. And a lot of people seem to be replacing that with different forms of spirituality, whatever that means. Um, a lot of, you know, you see a lot of people like doing like weird crystal stuff, like where they think crystals heal them. Or they, um, you know, I guess yoga is kind of a form of that. And just, other, it seems like a lot of people are replacing traditional religiosity with these other forms of spirituality which is fine like i'm not here to criticize people for being spiritual but it seems to me like a lot of people who go that direction who leave religion and and enter into this new form of worship and spirituality a lot of them seem to have these really um condescending opinions towards organized religion and almost kind of laugh at the absurdity of what we believe you know it's a you believe in a guy in the sky who controls everything or you know, the, a lot of people point at, you know, the, the, the origin of the Mormon religion and Joseph Smith and everything that happened with him and how absurd they find it to be. And yet they're believing some crystal is going to uh, make their life better. And it's just kind of funny to me that you can think something is so absurd and yet do something equally or more absurd yourself. It's like have some self-awareness here. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting trend you're seeing that everyone's gravitating towards even more absurd stuff than a religion. So I don't know if you've noticed any of that, but. Oh, I've definitely noticed it. I mean, I think it's, it's telling a bigger story, which is that people ultimately want to worship how they want to worship, right? I think it's innate in our human nature to believe in something bigger than themselves, whatever that may be, right? Whether it's actually a higher power or some higher energy, as they like to put it, whatever, fill in the blank. They want to believe yeah right the universe they want to believe basically that there is a greater meaning to their own existence i think that's innate in all of us and they want that but without all the strict structure of an organized religion and so basically what they have to do is create their own version of that which is essentially modern day idol worship i think because i i i actually have had this thought before i think idol worship really the reason why we're told not to worship idols is because idols are imperfect, right? They were made by an imperfect being and therefore have flaws. And I think the modern day interpretation of that is basically creating a God to your liking and making it so it's a little bit more convenient to worship a a God that is okay with you cutting any corners that you want to cut, right? And things along those lines. I don't know if I'm making that myself very clear here, but I think basically it's it's you're you're customizing a way of worship, and I think this weird spirituality and these like the crystals, as you've said, among <laughs> other things, are a way of doing that. Like they they say, well, like I don't really want to actually have to like feel. I don't want to have to go to church every Sunday in order to feel like I'm you know participating in this worship of a higher power. Um, so I'm just gonna do it my way. You know, I'm gonna. I'm going to rub my crystal three times every morning so that way I have the energy of the universe that I so desire, blah, blah, blah. So along those same lines, I also feel like politics in a lot of ways has replaced 
religion and people have sort of in a way made politics their god which i think is part of why not not just because of who the president just was but also just because people's entire worldview relies on their political party having power and when they don't win it's like you took their god away and that's why people are so pissed off when they don't win elections now dude you're you're quoting me to me for the record i literally wrote about this last year do you remember that um vaguely maybe maybe i got it from you i don't know but (laughs) i mean here's the thing it's actually not an original idea uh it's not like i thought of this and it was like wow this groundbreaking new idea that basically people replace their disbelief in a higher power with the government right and i actually wrote this blog post called the government won't make you happy and it was essentially referring to because what what actually concocted this idea was the fact that on the one year election of donald trump's uh or sorry one year anniversary of donald trump's election so november 8 2017 there were a bunch of people that got together in various parts of the country and they had a national scream at the sky day and that's where that one of those famous gifts come from with that snowflake uh, screaming at the sky like relentlessly like everybody knows that gif and that's actually what it's from that's the day it's from and you you start to see that more and more right where people are just like so angry and upset because there's preferred candidate didn't win and i was specifically taken aback by a scream at the sky day because i thought that was insane I, I was sitting there thinking like what would what would you know have to occur in order for someone to want to do that like to actually feel like that's that's something that they need to do in order for to achieve catharsis i don't know i don't know what the motivation is exactly but i started thinking about it and i was like well why would i scream at this guy what would motivate me and this is actually what i wrote i said i guess if someone murdered my family i may scream at the sky if someone burned my house down right in front of my eyes i may scream at the sky if someone told me that the god i believed in was dead or is able unable to wield at least one third of the power of my perceived well-being for the next four years i'm not sure i'd scream at the sky but maybe i'd understand it a little bit better and i was kind of thinking well it's because these people view the government as their god like they don't have a belief in a higher power right they don't believe specifically in god or any other higher power for that meaning so they feel like the only direct entity that has the most control over their lives besides themselves which who knows to what degree they even feel like they have control over their own lives is actually the government right because it's in our nature once again to believe in something greater than us and so when you don't have a specific belief system or a higher power to believe in there becomes this void in your lives this vacuum so to speak that you you want to have a belief that there's something better out there for you that there's more meaning along the way or that there's something else uh, a greater entity that can help your well-being and inevitably that void gets filled by a government and so you start to believe that government basically is your god and it's it's actually pretty sick because what you're doing is you're then saying these terrible imperfect human beings and sometimes even sinister and malicious human beings are your gods like they they actually have control over your life and your well-being and it's i mean it's such a damning mindset it's it's really scary to think like that's the position you're putting you're in then i can see why you're so depressed all the time or specifically want to go scream at the sky just because your preferred candidate wasn't elected well and conversely the people you disagree with they are the religious equivalent of satan then <laughs> which is why you see yeah, so exactly. much so much animosity towards people that disagree with people these days but um, I guess shifting from that topic, there's one other thing that came up today. I don't, 
I guess I don't know what the uh, rationale was for this topic on Twitter today, but I saw it all over the place on Twitter, and one of my least favorite people on Twitter tweeted about it, Shea Serrano. Um, so he, he made a remark about this uh, topic of unpaid internships, and he said, unpaid internships don't show that you're more dedicated to a job than someone else. They just show that there's a phone number in your phone that you can dial whenever you need money, which just kind of pissed me off because... I've spent the last 10 years of my life um, obviously extending out my tr- education and training so that I can put myself in a better position in the future. And while I can understand why people don't like unpaid internships, it's kind of the avenue you take. If you decide not to go do extra school or extra training, unpaid internships are kind of the other option straight out of college. I mean, we've kind of created a world where everyone goes to college and so you're no longer able to really separate yourself going to just undergrad alone these days and so what's kind of filled the gap there in order to allow you to separate yourself from other people or opportunities like unpaid internships um, in my case I decided to go do grad school and, and do all the extra training on top of that and that's how I separate myself but people who don't do that they have unpaid internships and I think until you can demonstrate to a company that you get you you bring value to the table, they have every right to use the laws of supply and demand to offer these unpaid internships to give people um, a way to separate themselves from the competition. And the fact that it's just such a millennial mindset to think that you come you come you you basically could go to college and you're immediately owed something from the world and and so that even a opportunity like an unpaid internship is looked at as some kind of oppression i don't know it just kind of pisses me off no yeah i that that's i get that for sure disclaimer chase serrano is actually one of my favorite writers out there but i totally get what you're saying because he had said some pretty scathing things out there on twitter specifically about like basically demonizing anybody that thinks differently than him and i always think that's a dangerous mindset no matter how you believe but anyway with that said uh that reminds me one of one of the more interesting kind of approaches to looking at that uh i can't remember where i heard it but it was um somebody making the point that the reason why a lot of internships are unpaid is because you can, you have to prove your work ethic and specifically when a company was created, you know, a lot of these owners and or whoever else had a stake in the company at the beginning had to do everything from top to bottom. They they were the ones taking out the trash because no one else was there to take out the trash. So they had to do everything. They had to supply they, they had to make sure supplies were there. They had to make sure just like the business could function at a very very granular level. And what they do with that is they say and and also not to mention they didn't know for sure when or how much their next paycheck was going to be so they understand that mindset to some degree because they were building something and if they they basically want to test you to say do how much of this company do you want to be a part of now do people abuse that absolutely are there jerk bosses out there that totally take interns for uh advantage of interns yeah absolutely and if you really think you're in one of those positions then you should probably make sure you're well versed on how most interns are treated and then make a decision from there and say is it worth it or not i don't know and and compare yourself in the in the shoes of everybody else and maybe try and find another internship if that's the case but at a at a broad level i think most of these bosses are just trying to make you prove yourself and say you got to work hard at this cuz this isn't easy i had to take out the trash so let's see if you take out the trash like a lot of them are just testing them like hey take out the trash i know like you're an intern like that's 
somebody has to do it, so it's going to be you, and let's see how you do it. And if and if you're going to do it with a bad attitude, they're going to look at you and be like, yeah, sorry, we, we don't want you here because we all had to do this once, and we all were doing it for the greater good. So you, I guess you just don't fit in. Well, I can't argue with that. Um, I just think that uh, kids our age, it's just we're – a lot of them are just have just become incredibly entitled when it comes to they they think that if you check one box that you you should be guaranteed something and there's no guarantees in life and up until the last 100 years there was no guarantee of survival and we've you know established that survival is a right and now we're establishing that making a six figure salary is apparently a right these days so i guess uh, you know i don't i don't know how the story's going to end if we keep uh, raising the threshold of what our rights are yeah, but it's a good whatever. question. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap it up here. But before we do, let's let's uh, give a little overview. We talked a little bit about this. Um, BYU is looking pretty good um, for basketball. Like things are shaping up. They got they were actually for the AP poll. They got the the twenty sixth most votes, meaning that they're basically the first team outside of the top twenty five. And I think that kind of makes sense with how they've been playing lately. Like they manhandled St. Mary's. They beat them easily both times this year. And uh, they got the tournament coming up next. And I actually see a scenario where BYU, I would bet you the spread comes out around seven because they're probably going to beat Pepperdine on Monday, assuming Pepperdine gets to that game, which I would imagine they do. So they play Pepperdine on Monday. They beat Pepperdine. They get to the championship to face Gonzaga. I bet the spread is about seven. That starts at, I bet it gets bet down to about five, five and a half. And I think BYU gives them a game. I don't think they win, but I think they lose maybe within seven and uh, looks pretty promising going into the tournament and maybe they're peaking right at the right time. I don't know. Yeah, we're starting to play in such a way that I'm starting to wonder if this team is getting up close to what they were last year. At least in terms of you know their efficiency offensively and defensively, you can make an argument that they're right in that same ballpark. I know that it's you know based off of how good last year last year's team was offensively, it's easy just to say they were the better team. But this team is worlds better on defense this year, and so yeah, we're not quite as good on offense, but definitely better on defense. And when you put the two together, we're kind of right in that same ballpark. And uh, I think we're peaking at the right time, and then this is this is starting to look like a team that could be a, a legitimate Sweet 16 contender. So we'll see what happens. But I, I kind of, I mean, that's where I diverge from you a little. Like I know we kind of talked about this before on the side, but I, you got a point. The defense is next level. It's better than last year. There's no question about that. And even like the three point percentage is actually better too. I guess this year than last. But I just. Like, I know we can get into the weeds with the eye test, and it doesn't really mean anything maybe at the end of the day, but, I mean, it means something. It's just hard to define. Um, It's hard to measure. I think the eye test from last year to this year, I think last year's team wins. I think we were way more polished. Um, I think we were just a really hard team to guard from a defensive standpoint because we just had shooters everywhere. Uh, And I think that's why last year's team beats this year's team head to head. But with that said, that doesn't mean this this year's team isn't a formidable opponent on its own and they can make waves. I think it'd be a miracle to get into the second weekend of play in the NCAA tournament. I think it'd be a nice bonus to even win our first game. I guess it kind of depends on where we get seated and who we play, but it's looking like we'll probably get like around maybe six at best. It's hard to say, but I'm guessing seven. Um 
seed. Also, a lot of that depends on how the WCC tournament shakes out. But I, I'm guessing we get to the second round of the NCAA tournament, and I guess technically round three. I guess we get. I'm guessing we're going to play on Saturday. Who knows how that's going to shake out? I think it'd be a miracle to get to the second week in the Sweet 16. Yeah, and I won't necessarily argue with you about last year's team being better than this year. What I will say, though, is this team is way more balanced, has way more depth, and is less likely to run into a matchup nightmare, whereas last year's team maybe had a higher ceiling because of how well they could shoot the ball and uh, just the senior leadership and everything. But I think they had more weak spots that could be exposed um, due to kind of their one-dimensional style of play, whereas this year's team is just so deep and so balanced across the board that I don't think they're going to face a team that's just going to create a massive matchup nightmare. I, I would agree with you for the most part, but one thing we do have to watch out for is our perimeter defense isn't stellar. Um, and so if we play a really good shooting team, like we're toast, I think. Potentially. And yeah. in the tournament, we could play a pretty good shooting team in the first round, and we could be that seven or six seed team that gets upset. You know, techni- I guess seven ten upset isn't like crazy, but... Well, what's scary now is a lot of the classic blue bloods, including North Carolina... And um, I think uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're not they're, doing too hot. Yeah, well, they, but they're, yeah. and Michigan State, they're shaping up to potentially be a team that slides into like a ten seed, and then we get faced against them as the seven, which would kind of suck to like earn a seven seed. Then you're playing a blue blood like North Carolina or Michigan State that's gonna just, just wouldn't that be the most BYU fate ever? By the way, in fact, now that we said it, it's gonna happen. That's exactly what's gonna happen. <laughs> That'd be amazing. All right, moving on real quick. BYU football uh, came out with new uniforms. We both like them. They're pretty cool looking. Um, their schedule, though, got finalized. I honestly think there's a good chance BYU goes 4-8 and eight next year. You don't see us losing more than 6. No. I, I mean, we could debate about I, this all day. We're not going to take that long talking about it, but that's really how I feel. Yeah, I think you're crazy for saying we're going 4-8, and eight, but, you know. It's – it's. Uh, I'm, I'm never I'm, – I'm, Dude, this is – my prediction comes from this. Our offensive line is gone, and well, we gone. have a quarterback that has never played a full season. Yeah, dude, we pr- lost almost everyone, didn't we? We lost – no, we only lost uh, Brady Christensen and Tristan Hodge. Who, who was the – who was like who were both amazing. Yeah. Like, they were both fantastic. They're both going to be draft picks. But we get MP, our center, MP, coming back, who's a future NFL draft pick. And, uh, True. And then a couple other starters. So, you know, we've returned 60% of the line still. I, I understand it's going to be a drop in production. And then quarterback. I don't think our running backs were. I think they benefited from a great offensive line. Um, we don't. I mean, Jaron Hall, I like, and I, I think he is good. But with a line that has to learn how to play together the right way, with a running back squad that was kind of overrated, I think, because the line was so good last year, I don't see Jaron Hall thriving. I, I could see him doing well here and there and showing flashes. Granted, this is assuming Jaron Hall plays the whole season because apparently they're saying that Conover might actually make a run at it. Who knows? Um, and I just I just don't see it shaking out too well because also, who who is Jaron Hall going to throw to? Like Gunnar Romney has already kind of like had a drop off last year. Um, like I, I don't think our receiving core is anything special. I mean, Dude, maybe, got- maybe we're going to have guys that are peaking at the right time. Like who knows, but. He's got Isaac Rex. I think there's plenty of weapons on the offense. We're coming off of one of our best seasons in the last. Is, is Bushman leaving, by the way? Yeah, Bushman's gone. But we get Isaac back. I forgot about that. You get. Um, that is a big one. Yeah, yeah, Isaac Rex was fantastic last year. There's no question yeah. about that. I can't believe Bushman's leaving. That's stupid. 
Yeah, at least that's my understanding. But then here's the thing. The schedule at face value, yeah, you're playing seven P5s and all that. But when you really look at the P5s we're playing, they're all either average to below average P5s other than USC and Utah. Arizona is Arizona didn't even win a game or they were yeah, they didn't win a game last year. Arizona State was 2 and 2. Uh Virginia was 5 and It seems five. like Arizona State's on the up and up though. Yeah, they, say, no, they, they're a pretty solid team, yeah. They're 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 an average to above average P5. Uh, but Baylor sucked last year. Washington State wasn't anything special. So a lot of those P5s are more like in the same caliber as like a good G5 team. So I I, I think that, yeah, I've, on a normal year, you're playing seven P5s. I think four and eight is possible. But this year, I don't think it's that good of a – it's a good schedule, but I think the the P5 caliber isn't that high this year. Well, maybe you're right, but this podcast did start as a jaded podcast for BYU fans, so I'm just you know sticking true to the namesake. That's all. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> With that, I think we'll sign off, man. You have anything else to say? No, I think I'm good. All righty. Well, much appreciated as always, and uh, we'll catch you on the next time. Catch you guys on the Flippity Flippity.